This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go, do you want me to go f***ing flash your lights? Take two. Film Verse. Film. Hello, movie lovers, and welcome to Film Verse Film, the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other. Which film will hold up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor? This episode is a guaranteed tearjerker as we compare two of the most romantic and emotional productions ever to be captured on film. One is set in 1960 Shanghai and the other the French countryside at the end of the 18th century. One is the story of two women who fall in love over the painting of a portrait and the other a pair of neighbouring cuckolds who refuse to commit the same act of love that has harmed them. Today we're looking at Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love and Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'm filmmaker and lover, Craig Anderson, and today I'm joined by my two best friends from high school, resident cinephile and a man who once turned a gum tree into Swiss cheese with the amount of secrets he divulged, it's Herschel Isaacs. I don't even know what that <laughs> reference is, man, but... No, it's the I'm final scene of In the Mood. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah, okay, in, okay, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, and you're such a creep. You're in the tree. There's so <laughs> many holes. But this is a great pairing. This is going to be a really great discussion. Awesome. We're also joined by Herschel's identical twin brother and a man who was once commissioned to paint a portrait of Montgomery Burns but was fired for making it too sexy. It's the associate <laughs> <laughs> film at the University of Sydney, Bruce Isaac. Is that, um, that's a reference to The Simpsons where Burns is getting painted, uh-huh. right? And he's yeah, naked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's yeah, yeah. painting him, though? Classic. Uh, Marge. It's Marge, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. that's like... But I, I figured you were like one of the first commissions. <laughs> and that it was like, it's too, too sexy, dude. <laughs> <laughs> now, we grew up together on Durragland out in Western Sydney, and as a trio of high achievers inside the public education system, we had a lot of time to watch movies. So today, before we get started on our main films, I'd like to cast our minds back to a Friday night in October 1993, when the three of us ventured out to the long-gone Mount Royal Astro Cinema to watch the suspense-packed Wolfgang Peterson film, In the Line of Fire. Oh, oh classic Big Craig, classic. Not only a, uh, a classic movie, uh-huh. but I actually remember this yeah. outing. Yeah, yeah. That because you know what the thing was? Astro, we've talked about Astro in season one. Mm. Astro was a part of our Astro was five bucks right? as well, don't forget. Yeah, don't you five, can, you five, can five, see yeah. a movie on the big screen for $5. It looked like a big shed. The coat cost next to nothing. It was like a big shed. Yeah, it yeah, looked yeah. like a big farm shed. Just a refresher for kids, if you haven't listened to uh, the episode where we cover Mount Road Astro, it was a cinema. It had about, what, eight it was trying to be a multiplex. It, it was, was pretty significant in terms of, like, with eight cinemas, that yeah. was a big deal. It was just to build right something next door to the TAFE in yeah. Mount Druid. Didn't we see Jurassic station. Park there as well? Yep. Yeah. Okay, so and Mission you, Impossible, Seven. We saw a lot there. If you yeah. hung out at Mount Druid Mall, mm. then Astro was just around the corner from that. Yeah. So that, they, they went hand in hand. Yep. Um, I want to get back to In the Line of Fire because we'd been following Wolfgang Peterson. So Wolfgang Peterson became first super famous with a movie called Dust Bought, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we knew about that 
but that movie was I'd hard to come by. That. I mean, mm. I grew up on the never ending story, right? Oh, I forgot he yeah, exactly. did that. Uh-huh. Exactly. That uh-huh. would have been his first American movie, right? No, never ending story was German, though, wasn't it? I'm, I don't think it was it's an American maybe movie. Maybe it's a weird co pro. It is, it is an English language, language but it's, it's got a lot it's of. It's got that kid from Daryl. <laughs> no, it's not, that's not a kid, is it? Yeah, 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 he's the Daryl kid. You're right. Title? Yeah, man, you're well, right. No, yeah. But then also Enemy Mine and, um, well, Outbreak came after this, the Dustin Hoffman. Out- yeah, but, but what's <laughs> interesting Outbreak is, is uh, whenever we do our, our series of the unwatchables, mm. please put Outbreak near the top okay, of the list. Okay. When, when Peterson, in the line of fire, is the, is the last time Peterson directed like a more European kind of cinema maker, a filmmaker. Sure. Because... In the Line of Fire is basically, it's kind of Day of the Jackal, isn't yes, it? It's really Jackal. Day of the Jackal in it's terms of It's not as clinical. good as Day of the Jackal. Well, it's a hell of a I movie, I mean, it's though. very good, but yeah, but Day of the Jackal is very special, I think. Um, For those who don't know, it's, it's about Clint Eastwood running alongside, uh, well, he's a Secret Service agent. Yeah. And now um, John Malkovich is... Uh, <laughs> John Malkovich. ...built a porcelain gun <laughs> <laughs> to go after All the president. All that stuff. I remember in the cinema when he broke out his porcelain gun. Yeah. I was just going, Jesus, <laughs> yes. That's genius. Yeah, yeah but what about the bit where gun. what about the bit where the guy's um, duck hunting and he's just standing there oh. and the guy comes over to him and he goes, "Whoa, that's I've never seen one of those before," and then he does that whole kind of. We see this is where Peterson had to go Hollywood. Yeah, Malkovich is looking straight ahead. He lifts the gun <laughs> over his shoulder, blows the guy's head off. No, well, that's, he doesn't that's even that's look right. at him. That's like Roger Moore in Moonraker. Yeah, it was it was a James. Bo- it was like a Roger Moore. And maneuver. then um, not at the time, but in the future, uh, Cheney. <laughs> <laughs> Peterson do that? No, 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 no. no, no I'm Dick Cheney shot Dick a man <laughs> out, hunting. out hunting for duck. I thought we where'd you get Wilkin Peterson and Cheney from? <laughs> um, um, other thing I want to say is we can't also forget when Peterson really scaled the height of heights, and that's with Air Force One. Yes. When um, Harrison Ford <laughs> sits there and he puts the red, white, and blue wires together, he oh goes, God. "United States, I'm counting on you." No, that, no, no. He goes, "Red, white, and blue, I'm counting." Yeah, on it's you. like it's mm-hmm. like. Yeah. I mean, that is, and Gary Oldman when he screams. <laughs> <laughs> Back to okay. John Malkovich because yes. he's in this film, and I'd forgotten because I, I always remember Clint Eastwood running yeah. alongside, and then they digitally put him in JFK's yes. footage, yeah. right? And he saved JFK's life, remember? Well, no, no, he no. didn't. What? Missed, <laughs> what? Oh, why isn't JFK alive then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. He missed no, that no, one. he missed it, and that's what drives him to become the best that he is. Yes, and he doesn't want to let. And he's go. got all this guilt. Yeah, and he's too old to be running alongside the limousine. Yeah. That's the part of the gag. Yes. Oh, but then that movie was made for I think forty million, and it took in one hundred eighty-seven. So it was quite wow. a substantial so a hit. I mean, yeah. anything over like one fifty million in those days, that was you had a big hit on your hands. Mm. But that's what that, that's a big budget for a movie back yeah. then as well. The other thing I want to say really quickly is. I don't know if you both remember, but I vividly remember the movie show Margaret and David episode for this. And they Because there was it. another movie. They did a summary of the best movies. You remember at the end of the year, they would yeah, go yes. best action movie, best drama yeah. and that? So in the best action movie thriller category, there were two absolute killers this year. It was in the line of fire. And this was the same as The Fugitive. Oh, yeah. wow. Well, David gave The Fugitive five, and I always, that was one of his reviews that I so massively disagreed with. Because I think The Fugitive is good, but it's not a five star movie. But In the Line of Fire is a five star. In the Line of Fire is five stars. Um, one thing I want to say how does the relationship between mm. Eastwood and Rene Russo play oh, out no, now? No, no, no. I would like to direct our listeners. <laughs> Go and watch that movie and check out that relationship. It is beyond weird. You know what I did when I was in Washington? You know the bit where you're sitting on the step yeah. in front of Abe Lincoln mm. and he goes, turn around, just give me yeah, one just look. just give me one little look. If she looks back, 
That means she's interested. So I know this is going to sound really creepy, but when I was in Washington, I went to I did two things. One is I went to stand next to Abe Lincoln and I turned around with my bus pass and I did um, Robert De Niro at <laughs> the midnight Niro, run. Midnight run. <laughs> and the second thing is I went down a few steps and I stepped out. And I'm just I'm staring at ran, at a random person 50 meters there to go. Just turn around, give me one look. Just give me one look. <laughs> Did you actually say that? Yeah, to myself, though. Dude, there's probably Secret wow. Service watching you going, this guy, who's this There's guy? something wrong with this yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. We need to check this guy's passport, get him out of the country. <laughs> I think he was nominated for an Oscar. John Malkovich. Yeah. He's really great. It's uh, really a distinctive villain character. Yeah. And that set a template for a bunch of things that came later. You know, that sort of um, urbane, quiet, mysterious, but psychopathic um you know, a uh, thriller person. Can you just remind me, did Peterson do Speed as well? No. no. Jan de Bont. Jan de Bont, that's yeah. right. I always confuse those guys because Jan de Bont was a cinematographer and Peterson yeah. came in as a cinematographer and I always confuse those yeah. two from way back. I, I always confuse René Harlan as well with yeah. Peterson. Mm. Well, there was this interesting influx of European filmmakers who were doing action. And in uh, some Verhoeven ways, like... With the, Verhoeven, with So, in fact, we completely forgot about him. Yeah. The, the one thing I'd say, I remember this because we were impressed within the line of fire because of its clinical nature. We mm. thought, the, you know, the plotting yeah, was uncompromising so because yeah. you had to follow. Remember the lady through the insurance policy mm -hmm. and then she realizes yeah. you've made up your name because he's flirting with her. He comes back and then he kills her and that was quite a violent yes. scene. So you had to keep up with the plot every step of the way and the way that Eastwood found, the way that Eastwood finds him has a lot in common mm. with uh, aspects of Day of the Jackal. Um, yeah. I loved Day of the Jackal. I read mm. the Forsyth novel when I was probably like 13 or something like yeah. that. So there was a part of that in the movie, and I loved it for that reason also. So mm. I still watch this movie every year or so. It's good. Year. I love The Glass Elevator. Uh, the oh, fantastic. fantastic right? so, it, I mean, that's, I think, an homage to Brian De Palma in um, Body Double. Ah. The, the, the great sequence for the shopping mall. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. obviously Which Commando. It's either, it's either that or it's the shopping mall in Commando. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was about to say Commando. Or, um, <laughs> See how we all have exactly the same frame of reference? Oh, the other one for me was Jackie Chan when he jumps just like Arnie. Arnie oh, in Rush Hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 all right. I think that's it for In the Line of Fire. A very exciting 90s action. Yeah. Mis uh, it's, it's Heaps not of people haven't seen it Yeah, it, it, Lots it, of it people. is worth Because I, I put it on thinking, well, this is going to be another stinker. You know, yeah. I think I just watched Blown Up or something. Not Blown Up. Um, Blown Away. Blown Away. That's a stinker. And I was like, here we go. That that was Star Cinemas as well, I believe. What didn't the three of us watching mm. expecting no, Jeff Bridges and Tommy Lee Jones? I think oh, Astro. Sorry, we didn't go to Astro. There was some other place we went, to, but we all saw that together, and yeah. it was crap. We thought that was going to be great. And yeah. again, talking about phases. Do you remember Jeff Bridges screaming? Have you yeah. seen? When's the last time you saw the cover of Blown Away? Yeah, it's Jeff Bridges. Look screaming at Jeff Bridges like screaming like Gary Oldman. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's enough for In the Line of Fire. As always, today's episode will feature spoilers for the two films. So this is your last chance to track them down and watch them before we give away most of the plot points. If other films come up incidentally as we speak, we will do our best not to spoil them. All right, let's get into it. Take one. First up on today's show, it's In the Mood for Love from the year 2000. Hong Kong-based filmmaker Wong Kar Wai had been writing and directing films since 1982. Then, during the mid-90s, he broke into the international mainstream when Miramax released his crime romance film, Chungking Express. After winning Best Director at Cannes with his 1997 film, Happy Together, Wong Kar Wai undertook production of what many consider his best film, In the Mood for Love. The story follows two married couples who move into adjacent apartments that are also populated by overly involved elderly landlords. 
Mrs. Chan, whose husband we never see, and Chow, whose wife we also never see, soon suspect that their partners are cheating on them and throughout the course of the story work out that it is with each other's spouse. The Jiltu duo begin to hypothesize how the affair began and soon fall in love with each other. Unlike their spouses, the couple decide that they won't commit the same carnal act that has harmed them. Years pass and the duo are now apart, and the final sequence of the film sees Chow in Cambodia whispering a secret into a wall and plugging it shut. The plot is unraveled in a series of moments, tableaus and scenes, often without any context or strong indication of how much time has passed. Slow motion shots accompanied by an enigmatic theme indicate moments of longing and desire, and despite the strong romantic theme, there is no sex or nudity in this movie. The film premiered at Cannes and had a small release worldwide in the year 2001. In the years since, critics and filmmakers have lauded this film as one of the greatest movies ever made. Bruce, I know that this film haunts your every waking <laughs> moment. What's your take on it? So this is a very special film for me. So uh, not only is it one of my favourite movies, uh, it's definitely a movie that, that, that I think uh, is personal to me as well. Uh, I when I visited Cambodia uh, with my wife Rebecca, and we went Angkor Wat, it was impossible for me not to mm. like. We bought a three day pass, so I spent three days just wandering those rocks and those ruins and stuff, and feeling completely lost. Uh, that's the best way I can describe it. I was just lost in the did place. You, for did three you days. have a monk watching you from a distance? <laughs> <laughs> well, there were a lot of monks around, ah. us, right? That, that place is so magical and so enigmatic. And the first time I saw In the Mood for Love, I didn't know what the hell was going on. Like, why mm. were ye? And, but being there a few years later and being there myself and knowing of the film, that stayed with me for many, many years and still has today. Like, I remember feeling the enormity of those monuments. Because, um, you know, the, the whole idea is that you leave your love there and it can never Whoa. die, right? Oh, I hate well, this. Because he's putting his secret oh, into, the, <laughs> into the wall. He puts it's his secret. And, and, but the key thing is, you, like, I like what you said, Craig, you've got to plug it closed. Mm. You can't ever let it out. And anyway, I'll come back to that business end. I want to mention, thanks to Quentin Tarantino, because Tarantino was the person, remember, he's worked with Miramax. So he's released Reservoir Dogs. He's the biggest thing in the world because of Pulp Fiction. Mm. But he's obsessed with Hong Kong's new wave cinema. And Wong Kar Wai is at the forefront of the new wave. So Tarantino's been following this guy's career. And Tarantino feels he's probably one of the most important voices in world cinema. So if you, because uh, I remember this vividly, I used to teach Chunking Express, right? So that's my wow. first entry point to Wong Kar Wai. When I first watched that, I thought, this is the coolest movie I've ever seen. Like, and... You know, for those of you who haven't seen Wong Kar Wai, uh, you, you know, it's like entering another world of cinema. It's like, you know, what is this? And my answer to that is check out Hong Kong cinema. They were doing things differently. So Chunking Express is just as cool as In the Mood for Love. Tarantino, if you get the DVD that was released, I think, in about 1995... It actually says presented by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> so that's how they were selling the DVD. And it's the same thing that the great auteurs were doing in the 70s. So Francis Ford Coppola was the guy that brought out the conformist, Bertolucci's movie. Yeah. And like these kind of American auteurs who took themselves seriously as artists, filmmakers, they thought it was their responsibility to introduce American audiences to world cinema. So this is what Tarantino was doing. So Chunking Express, Happy Together, um, Days of Being Wild. 
all these things Wong Kar Wai does, and he's building this following. I, it's not an exaggeration to say that In the Mood for Love is exactly as you say, Craig. It is probably regarded, it is regarded as in the top 20 films ever made. Sight and Sound, which is the only poll I take seriously, has it, it's top 20, it's got it at about 12, I think. It's the only movie, only In the Mood for Love and Mulholland Drive made it into the top 20. I think I read that. Out of B- every single movie mm. released in the 21st Film, century. I think BBC Film said it was, the, they voted their second greatest movie of the century. Yeah. Um, no, that doesn't surprise me. Because like, it's not just that the three of us might say, oh, we love this film. Well, I can say to you, this film has meant so much to me and I've taught it for many years to students and the amount of conversations I've had with students about this movie. It's not just that. It's that this is the first movie where we're saying to you, Critics, theorists, um, global commentators on cinema are saying this is an essential movie. This defines our art form for like 140 years, right? Yeah. So that's the first thing I want to say about In the Mood for Love. But then you, you, you take it to what it is, and it's a really simple love story. These two people fall in love who should not fall in love because they live in this really small apartment complex, as you described. Um, this movie is not about plot, right? I saw a wonderful interview with Wong Kar Wai and he said, I really have no interest in uh, the shoot, in the production. <laughs> like, I'm going to film stuff. Uh, it's, in the Move for Love is legendary because it came out of a series of almost vignettes that he had written. Like, it's not like they've got a shooting script going. They're just putting stuff together. And, you know, when you watch it, it's such a sort of impressionistic movie. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like it's about moments and moods and atmosphere. It's not really about or this person did this or said this or this bit of dialogue. So Wong Kar Wai famously said, filmmaking for me is not really about production. Filmmaking starts in post-production. And he talked about the way that he would work in the editing studio. And, and you can watch any Wong Kar Wai movie and you know that this is a guy who lives and breathes manipulating the image. So slow motions and weird cutting. And it's meticulous, know? right? Like, oh, like my God. When you, when you sit there, you're just going... It's like a person yeah. who's crafting every yep. second. There's a, there was one, like, I love what you say, Craig, about tableaus, like mm. still, obviously we've talked about, in fact, I think in the very last episode, we talked a bit about um, film as a moving image. Well, art has a long tradition of tableaus, like still, things that have been orchestrated to be still images. Wonka Wai is a natural artist, right? He's a guy that has worked through different mediums, uh, I believe his background is in art school. So, so like David Lynch, that's interesting. Yeah so, yeah, so so one of the things I love about In the Mood for Love, did you guys feel that there are just moments where it'll cut? And for me, it's like my jaw drops. There's just an image of such exquisite beauty mm-hmm. on the screen. What about the bit where they're having like a dinner together, they're sharing that the, yes. the steak? Or, and, oh, God. And then it's it, just amazing. But, but there's also... There are some obviously like double entendre sort of yeah. thing, but it's not played up for slapstick. No. And and he's going, oh, you 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 like your food hot, it's hot. And, and and it's just the whole thing's so yeah. beautiful and it's, it's so clever because they you know they're performing that right because because yeah. she's playing. I found it the endlessly wife, right? frustrating and fascinating <laughs> at the same time. I was like, what's going on, man? <laughs> I know. How and many it, times have you seen it, Craig? I've only seen it once. Okay, and so I've seen it like ten times. Oh right? wow! So and I will say. Mm. To people listening, when you watch it the first time, it it can it's a very deceptive movie, and it's so precise 
that you kind of have to see it a second time to to grab. I, I, I need to see it a second time. I've only seen it once. I did feel stupid, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> I feel stupid often. <laughs> but to, by the end, for yeah. that last sequence when yeah. in Cambodia, I'm like, what the hell's going on? I'm seeing this footage of you know the war or you yeah, know yeah. the exile, and I'm like, what? And then that sequence. Yeah. Everything clicked into place. Like I that. started crying nonstop. Just, I was like, what I, the hell I, is happening? Nonstop. <laughs> yeah, I could, like I was devo. That was Sunday yeah. morning. I was just like, I don't feel good now. I feel yeah. real messed up. You know what this. I felt but, about this? Yeah. Like, and I just I felt about this movie like Remember when I was at uni and I was at ANU, right? Yeah. And then I finished my exams early uh, <laughs> uh, uh, in, in comparison to my friends at, uh, then. And remember I got into Tolstoy yeah. and I was reading and it's a, and, and what was that short story you sent around that Tolstoy? Master and Man. All right, like, so it's like 60 pages, amazing, right? So what this movie reminded me of was this concept of you work, you read something or you watch something and you work your way through the characters and it becomes so affecting. Mm. But when you sit back, you can't work out what exactly yeah. has been done to you. But that's the... That's what Wong Kar Wai is all about. You don't exactly know what's going on. I right? read the first 60... Per- so uh, for the folks out there who love um, uh, Anna Karenin, I read the first... At, at about page 60, um, Levin... For all my Karin heads out there. So <laughs> Levin proposes to Katie, right, yeah. on about page 60, and he gets knocked back, right? And I swear to God, after that scene, I was like I was like welling up. Mm, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. sitting in the, in the sun reading the book, and I went through about probably 60 pages... On a Saturday morning, and I was really emotional. Yeah. And but I couldn't help but think, how does one construct, or how do you create my my involvement in just this short yeah. space of time that I feel is, and that's what I felt from in the mood for and love. The, like in fact, you were asking a sort of timeless question, right? Which is like, how does art, which is false, like it's artifice, mm. how does it generate real emotion? Because our emotions are real. Like I remember once going through a, like a minor existential crisis when I was about, I was probably about 25 because it really troubled me that I couldn't, how, how could I validate my emotional, my, my emotional register through, the, through fake stuff? Like, and then I thought, what? well, what if I no longer feel, like if I go and watch a movie and I can no longer feel emotion because I'm aware of the fakeness oh. of, so this is a, a but the, you know this is another thing I get asked yeah. as a filmmaker when you watch movies doesn't it ruin it for you you yeah. know like so well no the bad ones <laughs> the bad ones yeah, you, it doesn't it doesn't ruin but that anything. happens for everyone yeah. I, I think you see a bad film and you start go oh what the yeah. hell you start yeah. but then the good ones that are made well enough yes. or are getting a good enough story into your face and head you go oh no I, I'm just into it it's yeah. never but I, I tell you. Doing a rival two weeks ago yeah. on this podcast really helped. As I was soothed my frustration while I was watching, I'm like, no, 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 this is like memories. Yes, watching this is like a piecing together through memory. Yeah. I don't know if it's true, but that's how I started to yeah. reconcile with. I don't know what's happening a lot of the time, but I'm okay with it. I'm feeling like it's just pieces of yeah. fragments of uh, things that have happened. But which, and, and which that's by got the a end, bit to do with In the Mood for Love, right? Because but that's so what I'm saying. No, no, I'm oh, not saying in Arrival. I'm saying when I'm watching it, yes. Memories, I'm like, this is yeah. In the Mood for Love. I'm like, this is how I'm uh, processing it. I'm just going, it's okay. Remember how Arrival's just some weird memories yeah. over time and it doesn't make sense and yes. you work it out at the end. And then I was so happy at the end to work it out <laughs> that I was like, <laughs> once, oh. It, well, once, <laughs> once In the Mood for Love switches over to his move to Singapore, yes. from that point on, the whole movie is about memory and nostalgia. Yeah. So... 
Well, my favorite sequence is when they both come back to the apartment. Yeah. And yeah. they come at differing times, but they both stay out the window and they both think about yeah. what had happened before. To me, that's the most painful thing because <laughs> it's an acknowledgement that no matter what happens from your own in, you are never getting yep. back. You and, know what? That, I, can I just say what that reminded me a lot of? Uh, memories of murder. Yeah. At the return to the place where a the murder happened. A lot of this movie. And in fact, it's not a surprise that we're talking about like a non-American kind of cinema where yeah. so much is m- – memory, I think, has been so much more interestingly explored in non-Hollywood cinema. Like it's been a fundamental part. It's been done in Hollywood as, as well. But Wong Kar Wai and the sort of – especially like the Hong Kong tradition, the Korean tradition, it's so much about memory and time. Right, we talked about this extensively, and about your placement in time, like you, because that informs your identity so strongly. Yeah, Um, I just want to say a couple of things very quickly about the formal nature of this movie. So, yes, it doesn't; it's not a traditional story in that way. It's a very simple story, but the way that Wong Kar Wai is going to patch it together for us is so slippery. It's I don't know, like it's like you're constantly trying to hang on to. Mm. Wait, what's going on here? Like, Mm. and. That's why I'm saying to anyone listening, see it more than once. Like, And the second time and the third time, you revel in it. You don't have to worry because you just know, right? So, for example, when he goes, she, uh, he goes, you like hot food. Or, or no, uh, when she's, she, she like, or I like hot food or something. That's his, they're acting that out. So when I realized that they were performing pieces to get themselves used to yes. um, mm. um, consequences – that freaked me out. So I became completely unseated because I didn't know whether this was reality or whether they were acting no, something that's, out. that's part of the beauty of it, right? They're using it as a defense mechanism. They can't countenance the fact that their, their partners have done something so horrible to them. Mm. So they enact it. It's almost like dealing with a trauma, right? But they can't also countenance the fact that regardless of what they might do, they, there is nothing that will allow them to benefit yep. from this. Yeah. You know, it's it's. It, but it, I mean, there is a beautiful moment though when he says, um, "But then we couldn't avoid it because yeah, it's yeah. not that they they didn't have sex, mm. but they fell in love, and yeah. there was no way to stop that." Um, yeah. You know, and and uh, and for me, the moment where he touches her hand and she pulls her hand away, they're already in love. They're in love. But that was an they, indicator that they're not going to go there. They can't. You know? They can't go there. But in fact, the most important leap has already been made. Yeah. Right. Um, I just wanted to say, when people watch this, look at how episodic it is. It's going for noodles, right? Mm. Going for soup, crossing paths here. If you want to look at just brilliant mise-en-scene, you, you know, we talk about mise-en-scene on this podcast, you want to look at, like, genius mise-en-scene. Look at the, f- early on in the film, they're playing cards, and both the partners are there. Mm. And I, yeah, know, you know, yeah. and then it's, uh, he gets up, he's awkward, she moves, moves past him, and they're just close enough to touch slightly, but you're thinking, wait, but that, they're not married, she's got a different husband. Mm. She walks past him, goes and sits on the other side of the table, turns to her right to speak to her husband who, as you say, Craig, is never shown. Mm. So he's just off screen. Have a look at how much framing there is to keep the partner off screen Mm. and keep the two who will fall in love in constant eye lines. It's just genius. I've only seen this movie once. And even seeing it once when I saw that scene, I knew that that scene was a work of genius right there. I could have... the sequencing you would need in the camera, yeah. in the positioning, in the people hitting, hitting their mark, right? hitting yeah. their mark perfectly every single place. Yep. I I was in awe of that shot. That yeah. was crazy. And then I also wanted to uh, talk about the precision in, in the use of color, 
okay. like um, Maggie Chung's dresses, for mm. example, which are famous in cinema. So good. Um, you know, you talked about how it goes into the space of memory. Mm. And one of the things that pretty much all of Hong Kong cinema was about is also about Hong Kong itself and cultural change. And so it's the memory of this love, this romance, intersecting with the memory of Hong Kong and how culture was changing, things were opening up. And the idea that the way Wong Kar Wai is going to shoot this is we're kind of now living in time with these people, and it's incredibly sad. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it is, it's a very sad it's, story. You know, yes. uh, it's so difficult. But it's sad, but it's beautiful, right? Like I'd, Is there any party that says, wow, that's a down of a movie? For me, it's just, okay, I've been in the presence of the most exquisite beauty. But I feel the same way with Portrait because yeah. I spent – <laughs> this last weekend, because I watched both those movies for the first time, an emotional wreck. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. They're both exquisite movies. Oh, oh and I also want to say, I just want to say, uh, In the Mood for Love is a loose adaptation of David Lean's Brief Encounter. Yeah, so I read that. for read people that. who are interested, Brief Encounter is, I, I can't say that I love it as much as In the Mood for Love because I love that to death. But Brief Encounter is exquisite if you're interested in that as well. What is it, a movie? Yeah, it's a movie. It's oh. uh, based on Noel Coward's uh, play. So what is it? It's it, it David Lean's life story. <laughs> no, so David Lean, the great David Lean, he did Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, da, yeah. da, da, da. I think this would have been in the 40s, mid-40s, late 40s. And Brief Encounter, it's about two people who meet on a railway station as their trains cross. Wow. And it's just amazing. It's oh, so It's like the that. Richard Linklater series, like this after, before Sunset, Sunrise yeah, and all that. It's so a it's whole genre of yeah. these two people meet and it's just coincidence, and then something happens. But you know it's not going to lead to the classical Hollywood consummation of love, and we're all going to live happily ever after Brady Bunch. All right, I think it's time to move on to our second film. Take two. Our second film is Portrait of a Lady on Fire from 2019. French director and screenwriter Celine Sciamma had been making award-winning queer cinema since her debut feature, Water Lilies, in 2007. Her films have been well-regarded in critical circles and she often deals with themes of gender fluidity, lesbianism and the female gaze. In 2018, she began work on her fourth feature film, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's the story of a portraiture artist, Marianne, played by Naomi Merlant who was commissioned to create an artwork of the housebound Heloise, played by Adele Harnum. The portrait is to be sent to a suitor in Venice who means to marry Heloise, so she is reluctant to pose. Marianne must pretend to be a walking companion for Heloise, who eventually discovers the true meaning of her engagement. The couple fall in love and consummate their love only days before they are to be separated. As with our first film, there is an epilogue set years in the future that sees Marianne discover a portrait of Eloise that contains a secret signal that she is always thinking of her. The final moment of the film sees the two lovers sit at a distance from each other at a recital of a Vivaldi movement that has a significant meaning to the both of them. Schiama and her cinematographer Claire Mathon used 8K to manipulate light to make the feature look very much like the 18th century portraits of the film it is centred around. It features only a diegetic score with music generated by characters and instruments that are part of the drama. It went on to win Best Screenplay at Cannes, losing the Palme d'Or to Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Wow, two amazing I know, what a year that, that would have been. It went on to win a host of international awards and is extremely well regarded by critics and film fans around the world. Herschel, 
What's your take on this mesmerizing film? I, I can't remember who came up with the pairing for this and how we put portrait with In the Mood for Love and, and all of that. I think we always wanted to do portraits. Craig yeah. and I adored I that love movie. It. We sort of saw it a few years ago. And I hadn't seen it. And I remember it you guys just... talking about it. I hadn't seen it. Yeah. I saw both of these movies for the first time this past weekend. <laughs> and it's a testament. Now, they're not the easiest watches in the world. No, it's not no. like putting on Step Brothers or something like that, right? <laughs> but this is what I want to say. <laughs> I'm trying to put portrait of Step Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's what I'm trying to say. The, the point I want to make is, do you remember when Bong Joon-ho won the Oscar for Parasite? Mm, and he yeah. made that wonderful statement where he said, if people can get used to reading subtitles, it'll open up a world yeah, of cinema I to them that, that they're not going to be able sure. to imagine. Yeah. And I remember when he said that, I thought, what an amazing statement. What an mm. amazing concept and thought. I just think watching, I, I've been really lucky to watch these two movies this past weekend. And the truth is, most weekends when I'm sitting there, I go through Netflix or Stan or uh, the other streamers or whatever, and then I end up putting on something like Commando, which is fantastic, or Back to the Future, whatever it is, or Schwarzenegger. I'm going through Van Damme at the moment. The point you, I'm trying to make watched is... watched Wrong Bet on, uh, oh. on Saturday. I, I don't regret <laughs> watching it. It's a shocker, but I don't regret watching it. But um, I get your point here, because yeah. the stuff that serves up is just muck. It's gravy. Yes. They're streamers that are just trying to hit the mass appeal yep. of everything ever made, the and, same And as you film. started, these are two very challenging yeah. movies. Watching so, these two on the same weekend, it made me go, oh, man, cinema's good. And I just want to... <laughs> I, I guess sure. what I want to say to our listeners, and I'm saying it to myself as well, because I'm going to force myself to do this more often. Sometimes when you get out of your comfort zone, you just get so damn lucky by what yeah. you're watching. Yeah. So it's useful to That's like grace yourself to say, that. I, I I love what Bong Joon Ho said those years ago. I think it resonated in lots of American circles as well. It was a big deal. And I like what you're saying that sometimes put on the thing on stand that might be out of your comfort zone. Put on that weird Antonioni movie that someone decided to program. Well, I'm excited that if our listeners watch this and they hadn't seen them, because I, I yeah. think a, a bunch of our, a majority of our listeners are already film lovers and across all this stuff. Yes. But there's some people out there that are just putting things on because we're suggesting them. And I'm, I hope you enjoyed them. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope you're doing all right. Yeah. I just think there's some, t aim for the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Jeez, as, JFK, as JFK once said. Okay. okay, so to the movie. So, in, look, <laughs> absolutely unbelievable movie. So, listen. Are we back on Earth? We're, we're, okay. okay. I now, can't believe you quoted JFK in this podcast. I mean, talk about not expecting that. Well, it's in the line of fire. It's my fault. <laughs> there are a thousand things you might view in this movie, and that would become your take. There are so many beautiful things mm. about this movie that I kept thinking to myself, well, how do you how do you put this whole thing into a take? Like, it doesn't really do justice to mm -hmm. what, for me, is that the breadth of this film just leveled me mm. um, from the very beginning. The opening shot on the boat yeah. is so itself are you talking about crazy. After she has the class, yeah. and the, yeah, and then the cut to the boat, yeah. and, oh. and the and the camera's wobbling. Yeah, I was so Byron watched half of this movie with me. Right, he's he's just watching it. Uh, he's my seven year old, um, but I said to him. Wow, look at that. And we took it back. Mm. Just because that's a that's a great visual filmmaker, right? Mm. Which is, how are you going to shoot that? Like, what are we going to do? Uh, we could just do an overhead. We could do, like, just a wide shot of the boat. Because it would still be stunning. But that cut where the, the water's wobbling and the world is wobbling, I, I can't remember seeing anything but like also that the, ever. The, the nuance in that, her prote yeah. the protective nature she has yes. over the over the box, the yes. art. Yeah. Like, the uh, it's, it's just... 
it's it's just a work of beauty. It, it's like watching art. Mm. It, it's really it's well. Actually, just, that's something I want to come back to it's, later. It's really beautiful. Portrait of Lady on Fire is essentially about the wonders of love and the purity of the concept. See, what I love about this movie is that it's not just it's it's in no way an idealistic view mm. of love. It's about the reality and the unfairness of circumstance. Mm. I think it's also about the power of creativity to somehow overcome the the, the tragedy and the pain yeah. that life inevitably serves up to you. But also, can I? I love that. I want to add the power of creativity, but especially uh, painting, yeah, to reveal the truth of something. Okay, so which I, I think is just stunning. I think, you know, for me, like art, not as a not as a substitute. And when I say art, I mean creativity as well. But not as a substitute for love, but in some way a consolation for not being able to have what you truly want mm. in your heart. The other thing is, is that the way it presents love to me is, it just resonated with me, and it felt like one of the most honest. Accurate. I know it sounds crazy to say it's an accurate portrayal of love, but to me, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's in all of its pain, it's in all of its beauty. It's in the scene where where Marianne and and I just want to say also that that Nomi Milan and Adele Hona will play Eloise. I I just I find it hard to believe how good they are in every mm-hmm. single second of this movie. So remember the time when she's running toward the edge of the cliff, yeah. and then um, Marianne chases her. Now at this point. We've been let into some of the plot already, and we don't really know what happened to Eloise's sister. We don't know if it was a suicide. We don't know what Eloise is experiencing at this point in time. But the way the camera follows them, and when she pauses, and the close-up on her neck and her hair, and there's a sensuality between the two of them in the very opening of Mm. the film. It's it's like hard to believe when you watch it. I, I... I find so much of this hard to believe that a person created it because it was so perfect from what I was seeing. <laughs> but I think that's also people who are great filmmakers, who have great visual sensibilities. There's almost no moment that isn't sensual in this movie. It's, like this, you know, and when I say sensual and sensory, I don't mean just their bodies or the way they look at each other, but I mean like the way a room is shot, the way the light flickers off a wall, or when they're outside, the way the, you know, the ocean is so beautiful and so rugged, right? So I think it's just such a sensory movie. Yeah. yeah. I also want to say, you know, that I guess contradiction or, uh, you know, the contrast of what is a picturesque, beautiful, artistic vision of what you're looking at with reality. So for me, another key component of this entire film is the risk of love. But not being able to to not being able to turn away from it, though you know what the consequence is going mm. to be. I don't know if, if you all if you both felt the same way as me, but do you remember when we were waiting for uh, for the mother to return, Eloise's mm. mother to return? So she's uh, she's on the mainland, I believe, in Paris. Mm. She's coming back, and when she comes back, that's when the the remainder of the plans really get triggered. Um, and also, I should say that um, now. That's played by an actress named uh, Valeria Golina, mm. and she's remarkably good as well. Now, people are going to know her most famously from Hot Shots, mm. believe it or not. And Hot Shots Part uh, Two. Hot, Hot Shots Part Two. <laughs> oh, she's also in The Morning Show, the season two with Steve Carell. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, that's she's fantastic that in that. Yeah. She's wonderful. That's she's incredible. Like she's done so many wonderful yeah. She's a fundamental offside to this film because mm. what she does is she represents the reality of mm. what love is. Remember when she says But to also Marianne, she represents having... Having had to compromise yes, com- in yes. a world of patriarchy, mm. but like mm-hmm. she's made the decision 
you have to, you have no choice. But you right? know why Skiyama is so clever? Uh, you know where uh, Marianne and, and the mom are speaking, and then they had that really lovely, tender conversation where she says, you've made me laugh. Like, mm, she, yeah. she hasn't laughed in so long. Her life, her worry for her yeah, daughter, Eloise, daughter, her, her nice. other daughter who, who mm. is dead. When she says, you've, you, I haven't laughed in so long, you've made me laugh, that was such a beautiful, yeah. tender scene. What about when uh, the mother says, can you say goodbye to me like you used to as a little girl? And the daughter has to do this oh. thing and does a flutter thing with mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. to her face. See, it's, 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 it's so emotional. It's, like, it's, it's beautiful. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really emotive even now thinking about it. The other thing I want to say is, when I was waiting for the mum to return, and I don't, you know, I've read now a bit about this movie. I've read a bunch of reviews and all that sort of thing. But the one thing I think that they don't mention is actually how tightly plotted this film mm. is. So the mother's impending return, I don't know if you both felt mm. the same way, but for me, it was like an episode, <laughs> this is ridiculous, like an episode of 24, <laughs> counting down. Because I'll tell you <laughs> something. <laughs> that's your touchstone no, for everything. I'm, I'm, telling you, I'm telling you. You know what I'm trying to picture now? Mm. Suddenly it goes to a four split screen yeah. and it goes, do, 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 no, and but then I'm the telling mother's you. coming in the door downstairs. Yeah. They're putting their <laughs> clothes on. I felt, I felt, <laughs> I felt like my time w- with these wonderful people was running out. I felt yeah. in love with them. Yeah. I felt like my time was running out. And I don't know if you remember when the when the when the the, the footman or whatever you call him when he comes up and says um, mm. they've arrived. That that was horrible to yeah. me. That was horrible. Yeah, it's dreadful. Yeah. And the foot the footman is is also clinical. And, and everything's I, a clinical about. I know it. I'm being so basic uh, uh, to bring up um, another queer <laughs> film or uh, a line film, Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, yeah, but for sure. Th- every time they go away and they have to return home, yeah. I feel like that. It's like that deadline of, well, this is our special time. Your yeah. time is limited. And that's such right? a trope. Like one of the things I want to say that's so beautiful about this film is it's looking at like the imprisonment of people's lives, right? Especially of love stories, mm. but. Uh, stories, uh, women's stories, like this is late 18th century France. Um, you know, this is a, a this is a male world. But then also, this is a queer love story. And imagine how that would have been received at the time. So in every way, this is a secret. This is like Wong Kar Wai secret, right? Mm. Um, and one of the things I love is that the way the sort of secret is shared is like subversive. One of my favorite moments is, you know, the painting yeah. at the gallery and yeah. it's got the, the page, page of the book. Yeah. There's a huge history of tropes in literature and uh, poetry and so on of female characters who have to subversively sneak in things to express their love. And Virginia Woolf famously, it's like a, a love that cannot be named, mm. right? So when you can't name it, you've got to use some kind of representation. And this movie uses painting. Yeah, it's, it's just like it's a love that can't be named, but you and I are going to speak it to each other, right? So that you know the moment when we when she looks at the portrait and the page is there and she smiles. When I that saw for me, it was like oh. When I yeah, saw the number yeah. page twenty eight, yeah. I nearly fell off the bed. because <laughs> <laughs> years have passed. Oh, it's, right? it's, yeah, it's it's so it's, perfect. It's, it's a little bit, magnific- um, but and again, it's that trope like you know the uh, a love that can't be named. Um, how do you then know it's there? Through objects, right? Like the book with the page number. What about in, uh, you know, for me, one of the scenes that has always affected me is the scene in Brokeback where Heath Ledger goes to the, the parents' house and he finds that the shirt that Jack Gyllenhaal had all those years ago, he's kept it for decades. And it's this 
object that takes him back to a moment, yeah. right? Yep. In the same way that that little portrait on page 28 or whatever it is will always be that thing that captures you. Like, so exquisite, right? Because you can't be open about it. Because if you are, you will be ostracized. I started looking at the lighting, and mm. it was a fascinating part of what Skiama had set up. They had gone for an, a natural kind of lighting to color the interior. And actually, I, I read quite a bit about the lengths that they went to. Yes, um, when we say natural, we're saying it appears natural. Yeah. But the manufacturing of that is, so natural, is unbelievable. And it was a huge chunk of the budget. So what did they use to get the lights, to get the lighting? Huge soft they lighting in fact from outside. You go on. So really? that, scene, mm. that scene where Eloise is sitting and posing, yeah. with the natural lighting coming through the windows, what they realized was, in fact, it was the floor was too low for that. So they built a platform, and that took a massive amount of their budget. Mm. They built a platform wow. to bring it up to get more of the natural light in. And that's just one example yeah. of the detail. Now, Claire Maton was the, the cinematographer, right? And she had just, Skiyama says that she had just incredible ideas of how to capture this. Yeah. Um, and also the, the color palette of it. Yeah. And, 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 and I, to some extent, contrasting but also comparing it yep. to art in I itself. Actually, I was mesmerized by how they got some of the darker interiors, yeah. like where you've got flickering candles. And it really took me to like Barry Lyndon. And, you know, well, there's that's, an entire that's, history. That's Barry Lyndon yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. But that's the difference, right? Barry Lyndon, they, they use candles and they use certain lenses. Big too. lenses yeah, that yeah. in a lot of lighting. Yeah, yeah. What this does is an 8K sensor that also has such a dynamic range of dark to light. Yeah. And they're all playing at the same time. So you don't have to set just for one. You can shoot something and have that information so that when you go into color grade or yeah. uh, timing, you are now picking what you pick, what you darken that, you bring yep. this up, but you've got the information there. And that's one of the big advancements of digital cinema yes. versus film stock is that stock, you have to pick one and you've picked it. Yep. You've got very fast thing for outdoor shooting or whatever, yeah. you know, but with the dynamic range of digital, you go with 8K, you've got so much data there. Yeah. And so the combination of the, the natural lighting and the sophisticated lighting they've used, plus all of that range in post, to try and paint it the way you would paint. Yep. I, like, I don't know why the, the, the colorist of this film isn't more, you know, lauded as yeah. someone mm. you go to. I, I assume well, that Well, I also be. like going back to what you said, because obviously one part of the modeling of the aesthetic is 18th century painting. Mm. And I, you know, did a, bit of a, did a bit of work on this many years ago. But uh, there's, a, there's a major aesthetic, especially in French cinema, of using the painting of sort of like people like Fragonard, like very important painter. So you start to see it in the movies. And when I was watching this, it felt like a painterly film, mm. well, right? Well, it Stiella felt like the aesthetic. Said, yeah. So do you both, so what struck me, and this is before my reading on it, the number of close-ups where mm. you're actually getting the detail of the texture of their skin mm. which really surprised me up front, but so beautiful, right? Yeah. And so I was reading today and... Skiam actually said that they used the lighting in a particular way so that they were able to film that. They mm. were they wanted to see all the detail of the mm. skin and the tones and the blemishes. And, and I just think what you said about the performances as well, this movie does not work unless you get like the subtlety and the immersive nature of the performances. Because I don't know if you notice, there's like not much dialogue in this movie at all. Mm. So, so much is captured in like how bodies are used, how looks are exchanged. Um, one of my favorite scenes in probably movies of the last five years is the card game. Do you remember yeah. the card? You're not doing yeah. that for Mise en Scène, No, no, I'm just okay. having a little, I've got a final I just want to say to everyone, 
just watch that card game. I say this to students as well. Watch the card game over and over and look at the way that you can use kind of shots and reverse shots in different angles. And there's a, there's a progression. It's like we're having fun, but we're also kind of, you know, there's, there's something else emerging here. And it's just through looks. Can you imagine filming that on set? So I just want to take I'll, after take. Wait. Yeah, sorry. Th- th- there's a there's a thing with the performances here as well, mm. and that's um, Skiama, the director, had dated yes, um, that lead think, actor yeah. for such a long time. Is that right? But yeah. also, Waterlily is their f- her first film, 2007, which was 12 years before this. Yep. Those women, there's the two plus another woman, play a trio uh, who are at high school, mm-hmm. and at, they are high school aged actors in that film. And I remember seeing that about uh, maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm right. Wow, this is exciting and transgressive and a story you don't normally see of three kids in high school who fall in love. They're all, they're all girls and they all, uh, it's like this weird love triangle set at a pool, summer swim camp or whatever. Uh, And, and they, you know, she has had such a working relationship with these actors and that it's such a trust. And I think that's something that filmmakers, you work hard to earn that trust with your performers and it show it really pays off. She knows them so well and they trust her completely, you know? The final thing I wanted to say was a lovely part of this movie, it's also about bonding with others in the absence of like an observation. So as soon as the mother goes away and they left in Mm. in this home by themselves, so Sophie played by Luana Bajrami, is, a, is an incredibly important character. Mm. So she plays the maid. Mm. We, if, in fact, she's one of the very first characters in the film, one of the, one of the early important points of the film. And she is actually pregnant in this film. Mm. And so the other storyline of Sophie getting an abortion and the support that she gets from yeah, Eloise yeah. and from Marianne. Well, I, I wanted to say that I know that we're three guys sitting here. Yeah, yeah. But what I marveled at was just the, the feeling for me of the authenticity of this like makeshift community of women yeah. that had like kind of got together and had to support each other. Well, it's hard because there was so us. much trauma. Yeah, right? and, yeah, and it is like uh, being men. But I feel like we're in the realm of the the female here, which yeah. is I know the director's goal and that chant and that song that they do. Oh my god, that just, just blows my mind. And then she used it again for the credit sequence, that piece yeah. of music, which is excellent. And uh, uh, do you guys look up the translation from French? It's something like "We are bound" or "We are." No, right? no, yeah, no. Yeah. She no. So Skiama wrote that herself. The the ly- the words. Yeah. And she wrote it in Latin. Wow. Is it is it anything this woman can't do? <laughs> um, she wrote it in Latin and. Oh, no, I know what it is. It's they cannot escape and we rise. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's right, that's right. And so th- this bonding yeah. in the absence of control. So for me, it was the ultimate statement of what freedom can feel like and the, and the, abs- the euphoria yeah. of being mm. able to be free with others. Mm. It, yeah, it feels it's, like they're... It was beautiful. Like the mother... And, uh, and this is weird of me, an attempt at feminist reading, but she does bring the patriarchal world. Oh, totally. she, she represents what is about to She's happen. She's constantly a you threat. You must be married. Right, yeah. She is being the, the, the servant of the patriarchy in this sense. And also you are literally going to be viewed mm. by this male gaze. That's what we're doing here. Yeah. We've got to produce this thing for this guy's eyes. Yeah. So that but that's what's so beautiful about it. Yeah. This is the male gaze. And then later on, there's a painting again, I don't know, maybe by a male painter of her, but she's doing the secret code within that. Oh, painting, yeah. You know? Well, well this is, it's, it's the like, code that's sub, that, yeah. you know, that subverts the authority of the male. Yes, and author. coded inside yeah. the painting by our hero yeah. is 
a smile is yep. a, a face that only she could have produced yeah. on that uh, in that artwork. But it's know? even yeah, it's yeah, even yeah. In, it's even more powerful that she poses with with her daughter. We assume it's obviously mm, yeah. her daughter. Yeah. But even in the midst of that, this is such an important aspect of her life. Yeah. yeah. There you have it. Two very powerful love stories, or are they? They are love stories. Which I think they're love they're stories. stories. They're love stories, but yes. they're not. Well, I but, think they're but, good but love there are, stories, there are right? a particular subgenre in which the love, mm. like, is is secretive, and yes. it has to be secret. But it, and as Herschel calls it, pure love yeah. at times. You know, yeah, without yeah. all the bells and whistles that yes. a lot of romantic Hollywood cinema would it, give it's, you. Of course, it's stripped yeah. of all the yeah. decoration. It's stripped yeah. of well, all if you think the about most Hollywood love stories are heteronormative. Yeah, pretty much uh, by the numbers and conventional, and they affirm like the cleanliness of it. Yeah, this is all about what's subversive and transgressive because you have to, you're forced into it. Well, it's could you get any further away from Pretty Women? <laughs> but it's not the experience yeah. of the mess around love. Yeah, nothing is clear cut. Nothing yeah. is certain. Nothing is. Um, even last night, I was consoling someone who is in love, but it's painful oh, wow. and horrible and. It's not the way they wish it was. And even yeah. though it is what they have, it's not perfect and well, it's painful. I, you know? I believe it's the Scottish philosopher David Hume who said like, that love is the ultimate irrational engagement because mm. you have no control over it. You, you, know, you, you commit, you engage in it, but to, to, for, for that not to exist is like the ultimate pain. Right, so that's our film's two hot love stories. I hope you <laughs> love our mise en scene. Mise en scène. Now it's time for our mise en scene, where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, it's Bruce. What have you chosen for in the mood for love? I mean, I was gonna choose a whole bunch of other stuff, but then yeah. I thought, nah, you got to do the ending. It's okay. Like, okay. Okay. So I mentioned at the outset that uh, the ending is so affecting for me for a number of reasons. One, uh, Angkor Wat as a place was so affecting for me. Uh, I was there with my wife, Rebecca. Um, it, it was a strange place because it kind of brought you into contact with something very old, but Angkor Wat itself was also secret. So it was only discovered, I believe, in the mid-19th century after these... Uh, when, when was it? Do we know when it was? Uh, yes, from about the... It's the 12th and early 13th century, this incredible civilization right. uh, of great wealth and great art. And so when you go there, these, these buildings are like like artistic monuments to time. Right? I, still, yeah, I still wish I, it's I would just love to go there. place, right? Kathy, my partner, uh, has been there. She says yeah. it's one of the And, and the beauty of it is people think Angkor Wat is just like that one tower that you see on most of the postcards. Mm. It's not. It's a whole massive complex. So, for example, we had a three-day pass. You can't, like, a lot of people get bikes and ride because wow. it's massive. It's huge, right? There's a huge moat around just, so Angkor Wat is the main tower complex. Yeah. But then you've got Angkor, I think it's Angkor Rai, which was my favorite. And you would go through all these nooks and crannies, just like you see the guy walking through these and the monk watching him from an angle. Mm. So that exists. That's literally there, right? So the the final scene which is, of, you know, it's incredibly sad. But it's also an attempt to say that as humans, our emotions matter. And I really think that's a beautiful thing to take away from this movie. So the, in the mise scene, he goes to Angle Watt. And, you know, earlier in the film, he's told his friend that, you know, one of the things that people used to do when they couldn't tell someone about a secret they had was that they'd climb a big mountain. And then they'd whisper the secret into a, into the, a hole in the rock, and then they'd pack it with mud. So I didn't know that's the first time I saw it. I didn't know that's yeah. where this was going. 
but he's in Angkor Wat, and obviously Angkor Wat is carefully chosen because of what it represents historically, but also like the towering rocks. The only other film that that, that reminds me of is Picnic at Hanging Rock, where the girls vanish, mm. and it's a similar sort of symbolism of like we this is beyond time this is beyond understanding um and he goes obviously to the rock and this monk watches him from a distance he whispers his secret and do you notice the beautiful sequence where uh we then get the monk's point of view just mm. over the shoulder of the monk and he's speaking with his mouth his hands around his yeah, mouth into yeah. the rock but he's doing it for quite some time yes. it's like he's literally putting his heart out there to this rock and he's just speaking into it and then uh it cuts away and cuts back, and you see this mud over the top with little grass. Yeah, that's out yeah. There. You know, it's, it's sprouting grass. And then the very final parts of the the sequence are shooting ankle what, but now with a different film stock, um, and almost as if it's using a documentary style. And what it captures is the like the impermanence of his life, but the permanence of these monuments that sort of protect his secret. And it's just so stunning. Um, and I mean, I once, when I was teaching this once and I was doing this question, you know, and saying to people, what do you make of that scene? And to me, it's, you know, this is what cinema does. It brings you into contact with the pain of your memories, the pain that a moment once lived is gone, right? You know, and that's, that's the ultimate tragedy of our lives. If our lives are a moment, well, one day we'll all be dead, right? So there's an ultimate tragedy to your life. That movie tries to dramatize it for us. <laughs> it's true, right? I know, it's sad. Right. That movie dramatizes it for us and says, if you can't hold on to the thing, maybe you can protect it. So you put it in a rock and you put the grass over it. Now, one of the things I used to always say to students is, the way Wonka Wai shoots this is, you kind of lose yourself in time. Mm. It's really hard to know. Like, it doesn't go like, eight years later or you know it, it, it says first 1962 then 1963 then he's an ankle watch so you don't know exactly when this is taking place but also when you finally get the cut to the rock he's not there anymore mm. so like when is this is this you know has he just packed it in he's walked off or is this as a as a month I, I took it as the or? I, I took it as the period of time. So which the, to, me to me it feels like a period of time that that now his secret is there and that's all it is. What do you guys right? think of the, the 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 head of the monk? It, it like it was there for such a long time. Mm. I, I remember yeah. that stood out. It didn't affect me, but it lingers in my head because yeah. you know his ears went red with the the, the lighting from the. Oh, know, so right, I didn't notice you know, that. It's yeah, sort of like they, they were burning up because of the sun. <laughs> looking at the sun, but. What does that mean? Does that mean anything to you guys, that guy observing him? Well, I think the monk is just aligned with um, like the, 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 the audience. The, or? Like, yeah. I mean, it's obviously like it's a, it's a, it's a Buddhist religion. Yeah, because, because, well, I, so, I took it to be, well, it's observing mm. that life is suffering. Yeah. Like it's, it's yep. a sadness. And impermanence. Mm. But it's impermanence. Right. And it's just something that you have to come to terms with. Yeah. That, to me, is what the and final... And also, I like the fact that there is an observer. Like, we're the observers, yes. the spectators. Yeah, yeah. But then, to really drill in the emotion, Wonka Wai gives us another observer to look through. But it's not just any observer. It's a Buddhist monk. I think and there's it, an element of that. Like, the, yeah. the guardian of that space, but yes. also a spiritual guardian a spiritual saying, guardian. this is the way things is, almost. Like, yeah. observing it, not stopping it, yeah. not preventing it, yeah. or destroying the mud after it's there. Yeah. It, it let it happen, so to speak. Yeah. And there's something really spectacular for me always in the mud that's packed there and then the green sprouts. Well, that's I, why I, I think time has passed, but yeah. it's also that the secret has grown, you know, that it's, it's, it, 
it's a, it has life to it. It has a life it, in some And I sense, think that's yes. an important part. But the weird thing is the secret has life even as the secret represents an incredible site of tragedy and pain. Yes. You know, uh, and memory as well. Yeah, the, yeah. And, and, the, and memory, the power yeah. of memory to be as, you know, as much a part of your life as your reality. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the mise-en-scene. I think it's one of the most important, like, endings to a movie because, it co- as you said, Craig, you're watching and thinking, okay, what's this? is very odd. It's very uh, complex and, and convoluted. But then you get to Angle Watt and you go, okay, I totally get this. Mm. I see the ambition and the stature of this movie, you know, just because of that sequence in Angle Watt. It definitely cemented what had happened beforehand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Literally, yeah, figuratively, <laughs> uh, yeah, and into, literally into the yeah, yeah, the mud into the into the hole. I was like, oh yeah, that's how I feel about this whole movie. Yeah. Before then, I didn't know what. To think when about. I was at Anchor Watt, I whispered my own secret into. Did you? Did yeah. you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was like a really special place. I hope like it, you, you it wasn't about me, was it? <laughs> yeah, it was about you. I'm gonna Craig. go find out. Was, my my secret was I just hope I never meet Craig Anderson again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's such a. You, I hope he you, didn't whisper into the same rock as that other dude <laughs> and destroy his secret. Um, because the thing about it's hard for me. Like I've seen a lot of like things in the world. That's an unusual place to be because it's not like a lot of Western like tourist landmarks. Mm. It's it's kind of real weird. It's just like there's lots of people there, but it's open. It's like it's sprawling. It's kind of raw. It's very earthy because mm. it's all lots of trees and stuff all running through it and things. So it's like you've kind of entered another time. Quite, that's what it feels yeah. like. I, my, my, my shout out to Rookwood Cemetery, my favorite yeah, well, place in this country to yeah. go to, um, which is in Lidcombe in, in New South Wales. Um, I've taken a lot of my international friends who are listening to oh, that wow. space. But it is there's an, there's an area there which is the heritage area, which yeah. is not... Um, governed it's not visited much everyone's at least 100 years dead and it's an amazing weird space because it's been crafted in a grid by humans and landscaped and there's a serpentine canal and lots of figurines but they're all overgrown with the earth yeah and the earth is taking it back and it's just a haunting place if you ever well, get the chance i love that right the earth is taking it back mm. it's a bit like newtown cemetery which is also uh, like yeah. spectacular right i love the cemetery there um, but one of the things th- that's a little bit like the e- secret. The Earth is kind of taking it back. You When's know? the last like, time yeah. you walked through Newtown Cemetery? Like, like you know, eleven p.m. midnight. That is not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay, watch out for God's doing a photo shoot in there. Let's move on to our second mise en scene. Mise en scène. Herschel, it is your turn with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I think it's a testament to our well these movies pair that I'm also going for the final scene. Yeah. I mean, every second of Portrait is exquisite. Yeah. You know, you, you, every second is very, very special. So I'm picking it up literally from where Marianne sits down in the final performance in that beautiful great hall. Yeah, mm. that is the first time that I went, I've got to look up about how this was shot because yeah. as she enters from right to left and she moves across and the camera tracks with her, yeah. we see the 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 um the, like the border, the um the front of the, what do you call it? Yeah, like the, the balcony edge. The balcony the, yeah, edge. Yeah. And it looks like a Renaissance painting. I'm like, yeah. what is this it, painting? Uh, it, what it, is it's, this amazing? Absolutely, that's like you... Uh, you could see that was inspired by by what's yeah, part of it. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. And she tracks yeah. and she sits down. Yeah, it gone. transported me straight away because Bruce, mm. remember when we were backpacking overseas, we were in yeah. Vienna and we went to that performance, we the, the, and, the and it took me back to that time, wow. that time of I guess 
Yes, it's 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 high art, but it's also decadence and mm. and it's and it's and it's money, and that's the world that Eloise has entered. Now, when Marianne sits down, the way Skiyama and the way Claire Maton set up this entire final sequence is planned and it's meticulous. But somehow they they sort of cross this boundary into making it like absolutely real and and a statement of the love that these two women feel for each other. The entire scene opens with anticipation. So, Craig, as you were saying, people are taking their seats, and Marianne walks in. She sits down. But I think it's just, at this point, we've already heard her say, I saw her one more time. Yeah. Yes. Right? Saw, yes. Yeah. So exactly. we, we know this is the last time. This yeah. is the last time. She sits down. But in the midst of her sitting down and finding her place, we've got this low murmur in the crowd. You know, it's that anticipation. And I yeah, think that's yeah. an important part of yeah, the yeah, scene. Yeah, sure. The audience, the viewer, is in the same state of anticipation as Marianne is. Now, when she sits down, you don't get to see Eloise enter mm. at first. It's it's a it's a it's a shot on Marianne, mm. but here's the, and Craig, this is why it's so important when you point to that, the balcony edge, when eventually you get to look across, you realize that they're high up, mm. and there's this cavern between them. It's mm. almost like there's an ocean between the yeah, two yeah, women. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you got to watch this really closely. But as Eloise enters, which you can't see, the only reason you know she's entered is because Marianne pushes forward slightly on her seat. Yeah. And if you watch really carefully again, she takes a slight breath. Yeah. As but though also, her breath I has say, been taken away. I don't know if you but they held pretty tight on Marianne, right? Mm. And she starts looking around the hall. You know, like when you're in it, it's yeah, very yeah. exciting. Yeah. You're, looking at, you're looking at the pit and you're looking at the musicians tuning the instruments and stuff. But then when she, her eyes see who's just come in, mm. that moment... I don't know how many times they took that, right? But mm. that is spectacular. I've got that it's as well. It's spectacular. And, and you know what I you know what I've got in my notes here? I say there's a there's a slight look of resignation which gives way to a slight smile yeah. where it's kind of like you know it's enough for me to see her. That's mm. enough for me. Now from there I want to obviously I'm going to concentrate on what is now a much lauded and very famous mm. final shot of the film. Now, it's very important, this length of walk, because she ends up sitting in the best seats in the house. Yeah. Because well, she's rich. She's, exactly. She's now exactly. the aristocracy. But that's a symbol of society. That's a yeah. symbol of, of, of where her mother intended it to be. And it's a symbol, to some extent, of where she ended up. She has a child now, but we know from the book in the painting previously that we know where our heart is. So she sits mm. down. And from here, the camera very slowly moves in on Eloise. So from that point to the end is just on two minutes and 45 seconds. Mm. Wow. On one person with the camera moving in. Now, this during that two minutes and 45 seconds, Eloise and I, man, I don't know how many times I filmed this. Uh, Can you imagine how draining that would be? Yeah. To she, hold that emotion? She yeah. goes through a gamut of emotions from what appears to be an almost kind of neurotic euphoria yeah. just seeing the energy yeah. of the music to the tears coming down it's also that special music piece yeah. right? but yeah. that tears coming down yeah. her eyes right yeah. and then very carefully you watch that gives way to her smiling yeah. and then the final shot where the camera ends and it's her almost in a kind of frantic realisation this is going to sound absolutely nuts but it's like it's like her understanding the reality of everything that had happened, and that's just the that's the purity it's of love. It's almost like a bout of anxiety it, at the experience. I, I love that. Of that. I love that yeah. description. It's very difficult to watch, but it's beautiful to yeah. watch as well. And you, you know, you c I can't imagine a better ending to this movie. Yeah. 
It's completely incomplete. Oh, uh, can I just say, you just said completely incomplete. I just want to shout out to my PhD student, Caitlin, who <laughs> listens to us. Sure. She loves the podcast. Hello, Caitlin. She's submitting a PhD in three weeks. Her whole PhD is on gestures of incompleteness. In film? In, in, yeah, in, wow. yeah. No, Craig, it's like in bloody archaeology. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Like, hey, Caitlin, put this in your thesis. Complete incompleteness. Uh, look, I just want to say... It. Thank you. The point of the final shot for both women is that it defies explanation, it defies definition, but the only people who share the absolute truth is Marianne and Eloise. Yep. That's the beauty of it. I want to say one final thing. You know Mark Lassell, the, the famous reviewer, right? Yeah. Now, I don't know if you both think this as well, but I often have a differing of opinion with him. Like, he reviews things, I'm like, come on. Yeah. Like, mm. No way. But he wrote this, and I thought it was perfect, right? He said, and about the scene, actually, he said, there are many great acting moments in this film, but you should especially savor the final shot, the long close-up of Anel in profile. Put simply, it's why we go to the movies. Yeah, isn't that great? Wow. Because the idea of the close-up has often been this mysterious thing in cinema. Because, you know, like filmmaking, the, the close-up is like, it's only in the cinema. The close-up's not in painting. It's not in, you know, it's not in, in drama. You don't have a close-up in a, in a theater performance. Mm -hmm. it's, in, it's in film. So to use the close-up, I wanted to add in two points of reference to, for that close-up. Um, now, I don't exactly know the time frame, but the final sequence on George Clooney in Michael Clayton, the, mm. the long shot, four yeah, minutes, yeah. which ah. is just incredible. Like, Clooney's by far his best moment in, in film. But also, Timothy Chalamet at, in the end of Call Me Call By Your Man, Name, yeah. mm. where he just stares at the fire and we tie and that must be three or four minutes, right? So there's this kind of trope where if you've got amazing actors and if you can really get the authenticity of it, it's we have to live that pain. Yeah. And so we live it in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's the, But it's... The, the other thing is, it's the fact that it's in profile. Like you're a true observer yeah. of, of, of this experience. You're, you're a true observer. You, and wow, it, it really, I was thinking about this. I watched it again on the spot. I watched it a couple of times afterward. I watched it today. Mm. Um, and it's just, mm. yeah, it's breathtaking. It's yeah. a breathtaking scene, a breathtaking film. Well, there you have it, two amazing love stories. Which, what's your preference between this? Is this film versus film? If you had to yeah. pick one, what what's your favorite? Well, for me, in the mood for love, mm. like uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is very special and very important. But in the mood for love, I think is for me one of the greatest artworks I've ever encountered. For me, Portrait I've sat with for longer than Mood, yeah. and I yeah, that's that's my favorite yeah. special. I'm in love with that movie Portrait. I'm, yeah, it's yeah. going to be one of my favorite movies for the next three decades. Wow! I yeah. just, yeah, it was a that's game changer in terms of uh, the, the pairing. Mm. Whoever, if one of you, both of you, I don't know who it was. First time for me watching both movies. Yeah, a high point of this podcast for me. Of many, many high points. Let me put it that way. <laughs> well, there, there's so many high points. We, uh, how can we even reduce it to one? Yeah, remember the toy? All right. <laughs> <laughs> I still, I do have fond memories of the toy. I do. I mean, compared to Green Book. <laughs> That's it for our high-class romantic drama episode. Join us next week as we get ready to blow up some Nazis with the 1968 Clint Eastwood-led Where Eagles Dare 
versus Quentin Tarantino's World War II historical fantasy, <laughs> Inglorious Bastards, from 2009. Boys, it's going to be an explosive episode. I've, uh, is this our first Tarantino? Mm-hmm. It is Isn't actually. That amazing? But it's also, you I'm, know what it does? I'm so excited. You know what these two movies are going to do? Gonna, it's going to breach a period of time. We grew up with Guns of the Navarone, yeah. Where Eagles Dare. Did you Alice say Guns of the Navarone? Well, because that's a quote out of Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I remember <laughs> reading, I remember finding Where Eagles Dare in a school library, St. Clair High School, shout yeah. out to their library. Um, I remember reading Where Eagles Dare, but then you bring Tarantino in yeah. and... He, he does the Nazi caper movie as well. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. I can't wait for this one. It's, I, I'm looking forward to, and he does the whole Sergio Leone at the opening, which mm. is yeah. one of the greatest opening sequences. Well, that's your homework. Go out and watch those two films. I think you can get uh, Inglorious Bastards on Stan. Yeah. And you can get on Eagles, Stan, just check. Available yep. on Stan. And Eagles Dare, you, where Eagles Dare, you can find that on YouTube or Apple or Google. Yeah, one or of the paid Google Play, ones. Apple, or, or and, and maybe check even something like Tubi in case someone's put up a version of it. Yeah, sure. And of course, you can always just torrent it. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> are we, we going to be able to keep that? Well, who's that listening? In? The government, the FBI, and they're going to come and get us. No, you can, but we say don't. Yeah. <laughs> Set some time aside, we though. Do, Both, we, do, we do not agree with no, torrenting. We do. I just want to say, set some time aside that they're both long movies. Yeah. So you want you want hey, that's time, true. They're both two and a half hours. You want time to watch these movies because they're tremendously. Sort but of also, I want to say that Tarantino's openly said that where Eagles Day was the main inspiration for Inglorious. Oh, there you go. So, so we'll have a lot to talk yeah, about yeah. between those two films. Now, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen, as it'll help people find us. And uh, we're also on Instagram at Film versus Film Podcast. We're starting to put up some very exciting things. You might have seen some already, including your Trump versus. Uh, pumpkin stuff. <laughs> pumpkin. Sorry. Pumpkin. Pumpkin. Often mispronounced. Don't mispronounce okay. his name. He's a key person. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. I've been Craig Anderson. I've been Bruce Isaacs. I've been Herschel Isaacs. Join us next time for film versus film. Take two. Film versus film. Versus film.